does anyone else um, find uh, that the world that you are experiencing here and now is a lot different than the one you grew up with? Is, is it just me or does it feel like um, this is not the world that I grew up in and it feels ever-changing, ever-evolving, and it feels exponentially different? Uh, and it's not that I'm saying I want to go back, but progress, however we define progress, uh, always has growing pains. Progress never comes neat and easy. I remember when we were young parents with our oldest, Bjorn, being in kindergarten, half-day kindergarten the way God intended it, not this full-day nonsense stuff, but the half-day kindergarten where we would pick him up from school and we'd have these great family conversations and we didn't have that many things to compete with. But I remember driving home with Bjorn and Annika both in the back seat, coming home, and kind of out of the blue, in the silence of the car, I hear these words. I know what the F word is, driving, and my head just kind of sinks. Laura and I look at it. And before we can say anything about, like, don't say it out loud, uh, he goes, and I know what the H word is and the S word is. Awesome, really. And his three-year-old sister is sitting next to him and does not want to sit next to big brother who knows something that she doesn't know. So it's like, what? What is, what is the F word? What, you know, and we're like, oh, great. And Laurel and I are like, we're here. How do, I didn't think we were going to have this conversation right now, nor did we want to in front of her. But it just felt like growing up, they were experiencing things faster, sooner than we ever did. And so we're having talks way earlier than we ever wanted to or anticipated. So I didn't really want to break into the conversation about how other parents are bad parents and we love our child more, so we don't talk like that in our home. But we were gonna save that conversation till later. It reminded me again of how much times are a-changing. Um, there was this book that was written over 25 years ago that I had read more than a decade ago, but it was the first chapter that I was recently reminded of that um, stuck with me, and it felt really appropriate for what I see happening and going on in this world, uh, particularly in our country. And there's these two authors, um, and they begin to talk about the revolution, the, the dramatic change that's occurred within our society, specifically how it re relates to the church. And he says, uh, they say, sometime between 1960 and 1980, an old, inadequately conceived world ended and a fresh new world began. And so what they're saying is that the world has changed so dramatically more than the church can or wants to keep up. But what they're saying is there's an opportunity as well. And so they talk about this change world. When and how did we change? Although it may sound trivial, one of us tempted to date the shift sometime on a Sunday evening in 1963, then in Greenville, South Carolina, in defiance of the state's time-honored blue laws, the Fox Theater opened on a Sunday. Now, I'm not the youngest person in this room, I'm not the oldest person in this room, but how many can remember when stores were closed on Sundays? Because that was, and it wasn't just the Christian chicken, you know, Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby, it was shops across the board were closed on Sunday. At least the mom and pop stores are. I think growing up, I understood that department stores or the chains would be open, but 
Even in San Francisco, we didn't have blue, you know, the blue laws in effect, but there were more shops seemed to be closed on Sundays. Well, here they are kind of charting out this dramatic cultural shift, at least according to Greenville, South Carolina. And he says, it was that day uh, where the Fox Theater opened on Sunday. And he said, seven of us from the youth group made a pact to enter into the front door of church that Sunday evening, be seen, then quietly slip out the back door and join John Wayne at the Fox. And that evening came to represent a watershed in the history of Christendom, at least South Carolina style. And what they're saying is on that night, the last pocket of resistance to the secular, secular in the Western world served notice that it would no longer be a prop for the church. There would be no more free passes for the church, no more free rides. The Fox Theater went head-to-head with the church over who would provide the worldview for the young. That night, in 1963, the Fox Theater won in round one. And what they're saying is, is that um, growing up, the church was the only show in town, at least on Sunday mornings. I remember growing up, they had started to have sports on Sunday morning, but my parents says, if the If the games are before noon on Sunday, we're not playing. To which I remember often packing my sports clothes so that I could run and try and catch up to a game that was being played maybe Sunday at one. But we weren't gonna play around, and that was just at the beginning of youth sports being on Sunday morning. Um, And and he makes the case, he says, see, uh, and again, I'm a West Coast kid, but if you grew up around the deep South or maybe in the heartland, you see our parents, had never worried about whether we would grow up Christian. The church was the only show in town, and on Sunday, the town closed down. One could not even buy a gallon of gas. There was a traffic jam on Sunday mornings at 9.45 so that everyone could get to their respective Sunday school. Again, I don't know how many of you take, how many get taken back to your childhood or remembering hearing the stories. But he, he kind of makes the statement, he says, Um, The church, uh, home, and state formed a national consortium that worked together to instill, quote, Christian values. People grew up Christian simply by being lucky enough to be born in places like Greenville, South Carolina, and Pleasant Grove, Texas. Then he says, a few may still believe that by electing a few Christian senators, passing a few new laws, and tinkering with the federal budget, that we can form a Christian culture, or at least one that is a bit more just. But most people know this view to be touchingly uh, um, dated. And he says, we in no way mean to imply that before 1963, things were far better for believers. Our point is that before the Fox Theater opened on that Sunday, Christians could deceive themselves into thinking that we were in charge, that we had made a difference, and that we had created a Christian culture. Bear in mind that all of this Christian culture, all of these Christian values, all of the things that seem right and good with Christian America was that things were being done despite 
all of the racial divide that was going on specifically in the church. In the church, there was domestic violence all over the place. And in the Catholic church, we had pedophilia all over the place. And, and there, was, there was no real rights for those who had disabilities or mental illness. There was no advocacy for any of it. And the church remained silent. The church has long been tardy to the kind of the social issues of the day. And what they're saying is the fact that this has kind of become a revolution or that that, that Christian world or that Christian nation ideology has been broken down isn't actually a bad thing. In fact, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to apply what it means to be a Christian, have a living faith, whether we're gathered or whether we're apart. What they're advocating is saying the opportunity exists for us to redefine a Christian faith into the whole of our lives. Because we can't count on the right legislation and we can't count on the right people being elected to office. We can't count on the schools doing something for us that we believe in, but maybe should be doing ourselves. The Christian culture actually maybe kept us from addressing some of the things that Jesus wanted to address long before we became quote unquote, a Christian nation. So what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of things that Jesus was advocating when he talked about his kingdom on earth. In fact, one of the most popular phrases or themes that Jesus addressed was the idea of the kingdom of God. And Jesus was constantly trying to illustrate it. He was constantly trying to practice it and live into it. He was constantly trying to describe what the kingdom of heaven was like in the most everyday and ordinary ways. In fact, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter four. Now, if you read the life of Jesus, the red letters, Jesus would be walking along and it was so common that he would just simply go, almost like looking out, oh, you know what? The kingdom of God, and he takes some everyday inanimate object and try and illustrate it this way and he would talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in everyday and ordinary ways so this is a really important concept for us to understand because Jesus spent the majority of his time actually talking about it now let me say this upon further review and further investigation when we got Bjorn to actually spill the beans he understood that the h word was hate and the s word was shut up. And the F word was fart. Yes, those are bad words, and those are things that we choose not to say, but we're going to make good choices. I'm glad you learned that. And we feel like we got by on that one. We got kind of a pass on that one before he somehow grew up to be around all the other people's kids. You know, nevertheless, these times, they are a changing. And it doesn't matter who we're voting for. And it doesn't matter of who rises to power. And it doesn't matter what legislation. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, Jesus made the most audacious statement when he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he says, repent and believe the good news. That's what he said in Mark chapter 1. But what we have in Mark chapter 4 is the beginning of this tale where going along, he begins to just almost think out loud. And he talks about a mustard seed. And he's getting on this roll and, and he's talking again, thinking out loud. And he says, what shall we say that the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like, mm, 
it's like a mustard seed. You could almost see him looking out at the grove of mustard seed trees. And he goes, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds that you plant in the ground. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that all the birds of the air can perch in its shade. So he's talking about something. Now, if you are very literal or if you're a botanist or herbologist, and you're like, no, Bible's wrong because the mustard seed is not the smallest of those all seeds. Let me just simply offer this, that Jesus is speaking sort of poetically here. He's trying to make an illustration of the smallness of the kingdom of God blossoming into something beautiful. Now, we are results-oriented people. We love the end game. We want what this is going to look like. So when we invest ourselves in something, whether it be our kids' behavior or whether it be our stocks, we understand that we want to see fruit. We want to see the benefit. We want to have some ROI. So, and, and, and God's economy doesn't work like that. He talks about faith being as small as a mustard seed, planting a seed, and maybe that grows into a tree that gets to provide shade for a future generation, but we never actually benefit from it or get to celebrate it. The kingdom of God is, looks woefully ordinary, but can have dramatic effect over time. Ours is not results. Ours is to live into this new economy, this new way of thinking, so however optim, uh, 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 optimistic you are or pessimistic you are about the next four years, it doesn't always matter if you can be found in Christ. And so he continues on with this theme of the kingdom of God and trying to illustrate what it means. And then he goes on a little further to one of the most familiar passages that we know of Jesus calming the storm. Jesus being asleep in a boat that's being tossed. And I guess it was tumultuous enough to, for them to actually, and these were not like you know, novice sailors or fishermen. This was a serious storm, so much that Jesus has taken a nap. They want to wake him up and, and fearful for their lives, get him out of this slumber. And they say to him, uh, Jesus was in the stern sleeping. The disciples woke him. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to the disciples, with you could almost see... Why, why, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Yeah, they were terrified, but they, they asked each other, well, who is this that he controls even the wind and the waves that obey him? See, I think it's fair to say that the times that we're living in are stormy in our country, if not our world. And the disciples here were sleeping uh, we're, we're in the boat while Jesus was sleeping and asking the question, well, why are you still, uh, um, why are you so afraid? And Jesus is challenging them on their faith. And he says something to them that I think he's saying something to us. After knowing the acts of God, do you still not understand the ways of God? For those of us who grew up familiar with a lot of Bible stories. We are familiar with the acts of God. We're familiar with the miracles of God. We're familiar with um, the parables of God. We're familiar with many of the teachings of God. But do we still not know the ways of God? That the God who parted Red Seas is the same God 
who makes a way today. I think this is really significant for us to start to process. And this is, um, and, and so what he, he basically says is, it's okay because I'm with you. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. Jesus understands that there's an entirely different kingdom at play and operates on an entirely different set of principles. And this is where politics comes into the kingdom of God. This is where the great intersection is. And the disciples are terribly concerned with the global military superpower of their day, which happens to be the oppressive governmental regime that is Rome. And they are holding down and, and taxing uh, taxing these uh, beyond their ability to, to just survive all of the, the Hebrew nation. And so they have this idea that salvation needs to come, like it came in the days of Moses when they were in slavery for 400 years and he delivered them out of Egypt, or the days when the Babylonians were holding captive, that he raises up someone like Daniel and, and would be able to speak on behalf of the nation of God, or Jeremiah, uh, or, or the, when the Assyrians took over. Here, there's just another oppressive government. There's another dysfunctional government. There's another unjust government. And Jesus is saying, doesn't matter about the circumstances, I'm with you. But the disciples are concerned about the government. And so Jesus comes with them and he's using the storm as this beautiful illustration. And what Jesus is trying to illustrate is that Rome, the Roman government is only a backdrop for the story. But Jesus, when Jesus is here, the people of God got broken up into several groups. There were, there were simply the zealots, and maybe you've heard of the Zealots before, the Zealots were a nationalistic group. They were the ones that um, wanted to create a violent overthrow, that they said the only way for us to take back our rights is for us to bear arms. So it's gonna go to blows. That's why in the garden, Peter drew a sword when the, or when the guards came to attack. He's like, oh, it's on now. And he draws a sword and cuts off the guy's ear. And Jesus is like, oh my God, is this what you've given me to work with? After all this time, you're still, you're still drawing weapons? 70 years after Jesus' death, the zealots won out. They had, their, they had their critical mass and they went to war with Rome and all of Jerusalem, including the temple, was annihilated. And Jesus is like, that's not my kingdom. That's not what I'm about. There was another group called the Herodians. And what they tried to do is create the biggest voting block that the way we're going to take back this nation is to get enough people in alignment under the same political ideology that we can outvote them. And then there was another group called the Essenes. And the Essenes had segregated themselves, isolated themselves into what we might call a holy huddle. Because... We want to China self-select in this self-referential community that regardless of what's happening in the world around us, we can segregate ourselves in such a way that we'll be unaffected by the circumstances or the politics going on around us. Does this sound like maybe a little bit of our story? Jesus's words then and now is that my kingdom is not of this world and the empire. However we define empire, whether it be Egypt or whether it be Russia or whether it be Assyria or Babylon or Rome or America, 
is never the story. It's always the backstory. When we are in Christ, we understand that God's story always leads and whatever's going on around him is always the backdrop for what God is wanting to work out in terms of his restoration of a good earth. So we have this picture being played out. So Jesus becomes the revelation of God's character in humanity. And what Jesus demonstrates, what's it mean to be fully human? And so Jesus comes to free us from any kind of fear that we might possess. If you have conservative values, there's this idea that they're going to somehow take away what I enjoy. If you have profound needs, that there's somehow, that there's this great injustice. And what he's wanting to say is free us from the kind of fear that enslaves all of us. Governments function on their ability to maintain a certain level of fear. It's like they can ratchet up the amber alerts and say, oh no, because that's how people conform to what the government needs to do. And he's saying, my kingdom doesn't operate with that kind of fear. And he's trying to instill a kind of liberation, a kind of liberty that says, you don't have to live by these rules. And it's an empowering message. And so when many were disappointed in Jesus' coming because they were asking simply the wrong question. And the point is that the kingdom of God is here now regardless of who's in power. And, and, and that, so he's saying, Matthew 6, what? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all of these things shall be added unto you. This is a whole new economy. This is a whole different kind of kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. Other kingdoms, they'll come and go. Other regimes, other administrations, they'll come and go. But my kingdom is here now and has always been and will forever be. See, what we need to understand is when we're found in Christ, we maintain this sort of dual citizenship. That we are citizens of earth, but we're ambassadors, citizens of heaven. And eternity, that is heaven, has already begun. And we get to be agents of bringing heaven on earth where hell on earth exists. Now, God, working out a salvation plan, is about the restoration of all things. We are saying, you see hell on earth? You get to be a part of bringing healing. You get to be a part of meeting needs. You don't always get to be a part of seeing it healed. You don't always get to be a part of seeing it solved. But results are not left to us. They're left up to God. He just invites us to participate. So God's kingdom on earth, it means peace and justice for all. It means the shalom of God, that there is a prosperity and, and a kind of equality, whether you're gender or, or, or whether you're working class or educated class, there's a kind of prosperity that we're all supposed to enjoy. It means that nations get reconciled. It means that the weapons of warfare get melted down and become tools of agriculture. That's what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 2. It means that at the culmination of all this, there's this great banquet where every tear is wiped from their eyes and we come to this great banquet feast saying, this, this, not all that other stuff, this is what we've been waiting for. 
I thought it was something more. I thought it was more square footage. I thought it was the corner office. I thought it was more people thinking like me. No, 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 no. This great banquet with every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every social class, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the great banquet. This is what it culminates on the day of Christ's return. And he's like, this is my kingdom. This is what we're waiting for. And it's not about controlling the House or the Senate or the White House. It's not about being Republican or Democrat or independent or part of the Green Party or part of capitalism or communism or if Russia could cooperate and be less of a gangster mob or whatever. It's about something wholly, completely different. Is that your hope? Because tonight we're celebrating one hope, even though we come in with different thoughts and ideas. We're celebrating, we come together as one body and one hope. Is that your hope? I hope it is, because that's our only hope. Our hope isn't in a party platform or even election results. Now, I have my opinions, and I have my own thoughts about it, and it's worthy to participate in the political process. But the kingdom of God is here and now and we can't or shouldn't try and run to some self-referential communities trying to not remain unaffected and you've heard me say it is my natural temptation to try and callous up or insulate my heart from being too affected except i believe that christ when he rose from the dead he gave us all a promise that is we can experience new life when our hearts are made new when our hearts are resensitized even when our hearts are broken for all the right reasons. This is God's kingdom on earth. So to be unaffected is to miss out on something potentially transformational. So the question that I'm left with is how can we be people of hope in a divided country? Which Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you asked, right? Um, there was someone who would have been a marcher. I don't know how many of you watched the news or saw your social media feed. It is hard to get around what happened yesterday in this country or what happened on Friday in this country. But there is a lot going on and there was lots of people marching. I'm not a marcher. Uh, I don't, I don't disagree with people for marching, um, but there's a couple of things when I see the crowd swell that concern me. Number one, if I was to join in with them and align with them, it makes me a little nervous because there's so many voices, I don't want them to represent all of what I believe. I don't think that they could, and so I'm kind of concerned because there was a lot of different issues and opinions. But I'm also worried that the people that marching think that that's the culmination of where change happens. And I think a demonstration like marching on a Capitol steps is a worthy thing for someone to do. I'm not belittling it in the least bit. But it's a tragic place to remain if that's what we're doing as change agents to what really matters and make a difference. Let it be a starting point, but not an ending point. So the only way we can enact change is to roll up our sleeves and be the change in some small way, even if we don't get to see the benefit. And as Christians, this is what Christ says. It's like a mustard seed, and we might not ever see its full blossom, its full iteration, but we live our lives planting seeds for the glory of God, not the pat on our back. 
we plant the seeds of the kingdom of God, whether it be generosity or radical hospitality or compassion or, or, or we practice uh, mentoring, whatever it might look like, and let God fertilize and nurture and, and sow that soil. John, who would have been not just part of a march, John the Baptist would have been leading the march. I found it somewhat ironic, and this is just me giving my nerdy theological commentary because I have to read the Bible a lot, but you had everyone sort of marching to Capitol steps. They were marching to the establishment going, change happens at the Capitol. If we could legislate, if we could have voted better or something. What John does is he's in Jerusalem and he is one of these wingnut, foul-tipped guys who are like, everyone's like, he's the social misfit. But what he does is he leaves the establishment because he's got something to say and he goes out to the wilderness at the Jordan River. He departs with what is the establishment and says, I've got a word. And so everyone leaves what is the establishment in Israel, in the synagogue, in the government, and they're going out to see the freak show. He's eating honey and locusts, uh, and he's wearing this goofy costume with, of, of camel's hair, and he's just spouting off in the most unfiltered way. And you're like, you would be at the front of the march today. You would be leading the charge, but instead everyone comes out to see him. And he is doing these crazy things and he's baptized people. And what is he doing? The same thing Jesus said. He's calling for repentance, which is a really kind of loaded word. It, it sort of reminds us of our shortcomings, our inadequacies, except John's out there kind of raising the banner for repentance. And all of these Jewish people come out to him, these good church-going folk who are like, what is this about? Is this the Messiah? And he's like, no, you don't even know the half of it. I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandals. Well, who are you? And he says, I tell you what, I know the one who's coming, and it's not me. But he welcomes them by calling them. This is Luke chapter 3. You can read it for yourself in beginning in verse 7. And he calls them a bunch of snakes. Well, these are good church folks. He says, you brood of vipers. That's not necessarily a page out of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Welcome, you bunch of snakes. And, and, and he, then he begins to speak to them. Don't you dare claim your privilege because you're, quote, sons of Abraham. They, like a lot of Americans, were satisfied with the notion that we're a Christian nation. And if we could just get back to Christian values, they're sitting here going, if we could just usurp and, and conquer the Roman Empire and put us in power again, we could restore God's kingdom on earth. And he calls them all a bunch of snakes and he says, don't cash in, don't rest on the notion that you are Jews or you're sons of Abraham. And he says, repent, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance, which is a really loaded phrase. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not just say you're sorry, it's produce fruit, which has with it an active, not a passive connotation. And rather than getting defensive, rather than wanting to go to blows, rather than picking up a stone to stone them, they're like, well, what should we do? And he says these words in Luke chapter 3, verse 11. If any of you, this is what repentance looks like, people. If any of you got two shirts, give one who needs it. If any of you got extra food in your pantry, 
provide for someone who's hungry. What? I, <clears throat> I've been in the church my whole life. I've never heard repentance taught that way. Usually when repentance was taught to me, it was a little bit more animated and hellfire and brimstone, and I might have got the hell scared out of me. Uh, and, and that was kind of the intent is we're going to fill this altar up with people who are remorseful and feel really bad. And yet all he says is produce fruit with keeping with your repentance. And what does that look like? If you got two shirts, give one away. If you got some food in your pantry, hand it to some. In other words, need a need. You're looking for a welfare system, you're it. You're looking for social security, you're looking for a 401 system with some kind of retirement plan, you're it. Care for the widows, the aliens, the orphans, the single parents, care for them. Doesn't matter if they didn't earn it, there's needs among you. He was livid with the people of God for acting like they were more saved and safe than they really were. And what he calls them to do when they're living in a community of people who are going hungry and unclothed in a desert region is going, dadgummit, do something about it. If you've got something extra, take care of them. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. You don't have to solve world poverty. You don't have to solve world hunger. But if you found one person who's hungry, it might be good to buy him a cup of coffee and a sandwich. Modern translation. Produce fruit. So here's what I want to do. I want to make this as hopeful and as practical as possible. I am trying not to be a complex person, but I have a new campaign. One of the rhythms that we talk about is the rhythm of, gener of, of rhythm of renewal. What is renewal? It is simply the resensitizing of our hearts. Most of us don't live with margins that are really sustainable, but the one thing that we cannot do is callous up our hearts so that God can't be made new again and again and again. And to usher in and hear the whisper or the prompts of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, we have to renew our hearts. And sometimes that feels uncomfortable. Sometimes that feels inconvenient. But what I think God wants to do as part of his deliverance, his salvation, his hope, is to use us simply by how we renew our own hearts. And so I, guess what, I'm super creative. I wanna create a new faith experiment because I want to celebrate who Mission Hills is. And so ready? Rocket science, have to share one, right? You see where I get this from. Uh, it's, not, it's not genius, but it's simple. If any of you would have two of these things, share one. And my contention is this. It's not that the haves don't care about the have-nots. It's that we, me, simply don't know them. We don't come into contact with people who have needs that are not our own. Now, I have needs. I have needs because my son's going to be in college in two years, and I haven't done an adequate job saving for, like, college education. I'm pretty tardy in some of my retirement contributions. Okay. Except that there's people that actually are food insecure and literally hungry tonight. Meanwhile, I'm going to go out to dinner and not worry about being well-fed. I'm sitting here thinking about how I satisfy my sweet tooth before I go to bed. You see what I'm saying? And I think what we need to do as the people of God is figure out how to shorten the gap 
Not by dropping off something anonymously behind Goodwill in a back alley, but actually meeting someone whose need is different than our own and simply saying, what's your name? Can I help? And is there something that I can pray about? I'm not gonna solve a guy's plight. I'm simply gonna bring a little bit of encouragement. And if I have a flannel, or if I have a scarf, or if I have a winter coat, or if I have toiletry items, then I simply want to find someone who might benefit from it. So over the next month, this is what I want to do. You've heard me say practice, spiritual practice is the new deep. So what I want us to do is go through our closets or our garage and make our trunks and our vehicles a mobile pantry to the glory of God. And maybe you pack it with some winter layers. And if it's an extra cold night, take the scenic route home, find someone who could benefit from it. Maybe what you do is um, you find some time to um, and go door to door. We were at, uh, in December, on the most cold day of December, we were having a day with all of these people from um, Afghanistan, and they were from the Congo, and they were uh, from Cuba. They were from all over. But they were just excited that we were there, teaching them about some holiday traditions. Maybe we just go door to door and go and... Uh, is there something we can pray about? Is there, is there a need among you? And I promise you, they won't look at it as charity or look down on it. It feels bothersome to me. It feels a little inconvenient to me, but I just wonder, would my heart become more sensitized to the needs among us? I can be cynical with the best of them. I can justify not doing it with the best of them, but I wonder if we can be a part of God's kingdom on earth, if we would do this. So what I'm saying is do a few things like this and um, you know, go through your stuff. Um, if you have old cell phones, I learned this week that um, women's shelters benefit from these because they hand them out because uh, a woman is, uh, who's in a shelter is often still being stalked and they're keeping her and kids into safe care. But even if it doesn't have a service plan, you can still dial 911 and it'll go through, which is really great for a mom who's come out of an abusive situation that they can still call for help. What do we do with old cell phones? But I've got them. Oh, I, didn't, I learned this week that those could be of benefit to someone. What I'm saying is, could we close the gap from what we have to what other people can benefit from? Let me just close by saying, I had this moment a few years ago. I was, uh, uh, Bjorn was seven, uh, Annika was five. We had been at Alamo Draft House one night, it was in January, and I was doing something like this where I was going through my closet and I just loaded up the trunk with some winter clothes. And I took the long way home and I thought, you know what, I, I've got this stuff, I've been driving around and it's freezing tonight. And rather than cranking the heater, just beelining for home, I'm like, seventh and Trinity. This is like the gold mine for all things homeless, right? There's gonna be someone. And I end up down on 7th and Trinity and right by St. David's, you know, there's the Ark and there's the Veritas, there's all these places, or Caritas, excuse me, and uh, uh, I see this guy sitting uh, on this little step. Uh, and so I kind of double park and Bjorn comes with me and I walk up, grab a couple of things out of the back of the car and I, I sit down, I said, sir, um, I, don't, I, it's, I know it's cold out tonight. Do you have enough to wear? I have the, would this, be, would you? And he welcomed that like I was just bringing manna from heaven. I thought, well, this is great. And I said, my name's David. This is my son, Bjorn. Um, what's your name? His name's Jeff. And it's in moments like these that um, I, I, I had just gratitude, right? Because it's like the guy picked up on what I was doing. Not just as a Christian, 
but what I was trying to do as a father, like, hey, we live in Westlake, but there's actually people who are cold and hungry tonight and without roof. So he picks up on it and he says, you know, and he starts talking to my son about turning the other cheek. And he starts talking to him about the good Samaritan. And he starts going down this road. Now he had described himself literally used the word second-class citizen. He had been homeless for so long that he saw himself as so on the fringes because homeless people don't get actually direct eye contact from most people because we expect a, you know, a kind of a palms open approach. So they're not used to be treating with a sort of humane dignity. But yet he starts engaging me and my son about what the gospel would say and what God has taught us, recognizing that we're trying to do it for him. At that moment, a security guard comes around. At first, I thought he was police. And this guy was twice as wide as me. And he was a formidable fellow. And uh, I am not a confrontational guy normally. But he came up and he just started barking. He didn't acknowledge me. And this guy had kind of laid out his things. And he started yelling up, kind of in this imposing way, kind of bowed out, and just getting him off of the step. And so Baron and I kind of grabbed a couple of things and, and just kind of helped him off the step. We're now on the sidewalk, and the guy follows him onto the sidewalk. He says, I said, get out of here, get off. And now we step off, and we're literally like in the gutter between two parallel parked cars, and he keeps coming up. And so I'm standing next to Jeff, and here's Bjorn, and then this guy won't let up. And he, I told you to get out. And I was like, well, sir, we've gotten out here. He's done what you've asked him to do. We're on public space. This is not the church. What? And he's like, I'm not talking to you. This is not your problem. To which I'm like, you're making it my problem. I, and at this point, um, I became someone I'm not. And what was once his problem became my problem. And I couldn't sit as a bystander anymore. And I now do one of these numbers in f and I stand in between. This isn't a calculated move. If, if I was to lay bets over who would win this little match, I wouldn't bet on me. But there was something in me that got ignited. And again, this wasn't, you know, the presence of mine or anything, but I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy, start yelling. People are driving by honking as if there's a street fight going on and yelling at me as if I'm one of the homeless riffraff. Bjorn has never seen this side of daddy before. Daddy the yeller. And I see this seven-year-old just sprint back down to the car to the safety of mom and Annika. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've scared my own son. The adrenaline is pumping. Like I can feel my veins going on. Oh, it's going down. And, um, and, I, and I, what happened was Jeff was not wanting me to go. And I was like, I've, this, I see my son, like he's my priority, I've got it. And he's like, no, please don't. Finally, the guy leaves us alone after my like not backing down. But he says, you don't understand. He found me sleeping in the back and he came up. I'm still injured from him kicking me in my back. I've got this chronic back pain and I didn't want him to assault me again. So I didn't want you to leave. If you would have left, I'm afraid of what he would have done to me. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but he didn't want to be left alone. And um, uh, there's moments where we can't just stand 
on the sidelines anymore. We can't just be immune to this. What, me, my family, we're provided for. I worked hard. We're, we're, we're conscientious of our finances. We, we make good decisions. Except here's a guy who's one of the vulnerable among us and is being assaulted. And he's one of my neighbors, if I call myself an Austin resident. I thought, you know what he did at the end of that? He invited me to church. He goes to this thing called Church Under the Bridge. He wanted to welcome me to his church. And I thought, I walked away really with the adrenaline pumping, like, okay, this is, this is interesting, but humbled um, by the experience. And so I'm not saying go get into a fist fight. I'm not saying get into a shouting match or get arrested. But what I am saying is when we begin to shorten the gap and identify the simple, most basic needs among us. God meets us in the most profound ways. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And I didn't solve homelessness tonight, but I will say my heart was resensitized in the moment. So take a card, take a few cards, tell your friends what we're doing, get on your neighborhood and, and just say, Hey, I'm just collecting a few bags and uh, jackets and coats. If you have kids stuff, if you have blankets, if you have toiletries, if you have, I just want to collect them, drop them off on my porch. But if you know anyone else in need, let me know too. I think this is the best publicity a church can have. We want to be a part of God's kingdom on earth. So if you have Nextdoor app, if you have a little email distributions, would you just become advocates as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and as residents of Austin? We want to figure out ways that we can resensitize our hearts, shorten the gaps, and have this adventure in redistribution. And over the next month, I hope to have moments where we do this. Let's pray together. Father, um, you, you alone, get the praise for what you want to do in us and through us we want to have glimpses of you. So um, give us moments where we can be interrupted. Give us moments where we can um, see what we do have. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see both the, the needs, the opportunities, and the resources that are already in front of us, that we might bring your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in Austin, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.